In Michigan, November 15th marks opening day of deer season. For Michigan's hunters, it's practically a holiday. Hunters all over the state head out into the woods and fields in hopes of encountering a deer. Many of them will hunt on private land, but those who don't have access to private hunting areas can try their luck on public lands like the Fulton State Game Area, a square mile of swampy woodland in a rural corner of Kalamazoo County that's been set aside for public hunting access. Ron and Sandy Elwell have lived beside the Fulton Game Area for over 30 years now, in a cabin that they built themselves in an idyllic wooded clearing that borders the public hunting land. Back in 1990, Ron Elwell still was working on the cabin. That November 17th, the first Saturday of that year's deer season, nearby hunters in the Fulton State game area would later recall hearing the sound of his hammering ringing out through the woods all afternoon. But that fall, um, gosh, I can still remember it pretty vividly, a friend of mine was over and we were building the deck on the back end of it, and uh, I heard the two shots, but... You don't think nothing of it because we're this is state property, you know, this is a state hunting area, so you know, we hear shots constantly. So, but those two, it was, I don't know, it was kind of a quiet afternoon, you know, again, we didn't think nothing of it. During hunting season, if you're anywhere down near the game area, it's normal to hear gunshots all day long. So, if anything, that particular afternoon was notable because of how quiet it was. Just two shots fired close together in the hour or so leading up until dark. And after that, things quieted down again. It wasn't until sometime around sunset that Ron Elwell first heard the yelling. Um, it was a nice afternoon. The sun was out. Um, and then my friend went home, and um, I was putting tools away. And that's when I heard the guy come up the, come up the field. So I went across, and him and I kind of almost ran right into each other right there. You know, he was pretty, pretty shook up. And, said, you gotta help. Of course, I assumed it was, a, was an accident, you know. The man was upset, frantic, hard to understand. But from what Ron Elwell could piece together from what the man was saying, he and a friend had been back hunting in the game area, and his friend had somehow been shot. Ron called out to his wife, Sandy, to call 911. When the man led him back to a patch of woods just south of a large field, he saw the bodies of not one, but two hunters, they were lying there on the forest floor, maybe 25 feet apart from one another. And then his, his body laid there face up, where the other guy was face down. And, um, uh, but I, I did check them both, and there was no, neither one of them had pulse. And, uh, um, of course, then we just sat there and waited. Um, we were, gosh, it seemed like an eternity. We were back there just sitting there, and this poor kid was just bawling his eyes out, you know, and, Ron Elwell had walked back into the woods expecting to find a hunter injured or killed in a hunting mishap. And even when he saw that there were two victims, he still assumed it was an accident of some sort, at least initially. But, you know, the longer I sit there, the more I could, you know, you're looking at this, it's like, man, something's not right here. It was nearly full dark before any police officers arrived at the Fulton State game area. And when they did, they were walking into a crime scene that would be a nightmare scenario for any investigator. The victims, 33-year-old Doug Estes of Comstock and 37-year-old Jim Bennett of Leonidas, had gone to the game area that afternoon to hunt, but they had not gone together and they were not in the same hunting party. No one knew how they ended up together before they were killed, 
each of them shot in the back once by a shotgun fired at close range. On this case, you have nobody to really tell you anything. Footprints, not necessarily on hair fibers, unlikely. You're out in the middle of nowhere in a forest. Very difficult. In many ways, it's, it, it was the perfect crime. Pretty good one, I'd say, yeah. That's Detective Sergeant Bruce Worsema. That night when he arrived at the crime scene, he was assigned as a lead investigator for the double homicide. He did not solve this case. It's probably the only homicide that I had worked on that wasn't solved. Yeah. But it's not because this case was left unsolved that it's still bothering Detective Worsema today, 30 years later. What bothers him today is that in 2002, 11 years after the murders in the Fulton State game area, a cold case team that had reopened the investigation finally did solve the case, or at least made an arrest and got a conviction. But Detective Worsema doesn't think they got the right man. My reaction to the verdict, his verdict, is one of, I guess, disbelief, having faith in my fellow detectives, and then seeing what he was convicted on and the fact that people some witnesses were steered to the direction that would fit better. Sticks in my craw. Still bothers me. Because I feel he's an innocent man in prison. And he's not somebody that I normally would, that I, I don't think I would normally feel support to. But I can't shake this one. I've never had the feeling like this, like a man is in prison, and it's partially because of me. And maybe something I didn't do or omitted or messed up on, so. As far as I'm concerned, there's still somebody out there that killed two people and are getting away with it. Welcome to Undisclosed, The State versus Jeff Titus. My name is Rabia Chaudhary. I'm an attorney and author of Adnan Story, and I'm here with my colleagues, Susan Simpson and Colin Miller. Hi, I'm Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney in Washington, D.C., and I blog at The View from LL2. Hi, this is Colin Miller. I'm an associate dean and professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law, and I blog at Evidence Prof Blog. This season of Undisclosed, we're going to Kalamazoo County in western Michigan, where we will investigate the case of Jeff Titus. New episodes in this series will be released every Mondays at 6 p.m. And on Thursdays, also at 6 p.m., we'll also be releasing addendum episodes, in which we discuss that week's episode with special guests and answer listener questions. I'm Jason Moon, host of Bear Brook. 
I want to tell you about a new podcast I've been working on. It's a story that starts with a murder, a dishonest cop, and a botched investigation. It leads to a secret list of police officers with, quote, credibility issues. These are the different reasons people were put on the list. Falsifying reports or records, issuance of unlawful orders, obedience to laws and policies. And the story brings us to now, right now, as many Americans wonder in a new way. Can I trust the cops? To turn a blind eye is basically saying, well, I hope the justice system works. That's not good enough for me. From New Hampshire Public Radio, Document, Season 1, The List. A podcast about one state's decades of secrecy around police misconduct. Binge all episodes now, wherever you get your podcasts. Twenty twenty has been a different sort of year for well, literally all of us, and that includes for the podcast. Early this spring, just as I was gearing up to go on the road for another investigation, it became apparent that our plans for season five, undisclosed, were going to have to change. I wasn't sure when or if it would become possible again to go out and interview witnesses. And pretty much none of the government agencies that we need records from had figured out when or if they'd be able to resume responding to FOIA requests. One option we had was to essentially half-ass one of the cases that we already had in progress. To press ahead with what would be, at best, a partial and inadequate investigation, given the limitations imposed by the pandemic. But that didn't really feel like an option either, and I couldn't figure out how to decide which of our cases would be the one that would be left only partially investigated. And that's when I began to think about the case of Jeff Titus, which, at the time, wasn't even one of my cases. It was a case I'd heard about from Jacinda Davis, back when we met up last year for a drink at a rooftop bar, back in the before time when meeting for drinks at rooftop bars was still a thing that people did. Jacinda Davis is an executive producer for Red Marble Media, which specializes in true crime documentary shows. And Jacinda was telling me about this new investigation discovery series that her team was working on and some of the cases that the show was going to feature. Now, if I'm being honest, true crime television isn't normally my thing. And if I'm being even more honest, before talking to Jacinda, I hadn't watched any of the shows her team produces or, well, basically anything else on investigation discovery. True Crime TV, with its closed cases and concise certainty, has just always felt like such a different world from True Crime podcasts, where unsolved cases and open investigations are the norm. In contrast, on True Crime TV, you usually hear about cases where we already have all the answers, or at least cases that are presented in a way that makes it sound like we have all the answers. But the new series that Jacinda and Red Marble were working on was going to be doing something a bit different. It was going to tell the stories of cases where we don't have all the answers. And of cases where investigators may think they have all the answers, but maybe they really don't. And one of the cases that Red Marble was going to cover on its new show was that of Jeff Titus, who was convicted in 2002 of a double homicide that had occurred 12 years previously in a public hunting area in a rural corner of Kalamazoo County, Michigan. When Jacinda and I had met up at the rooftop bar, she'd mentioned this case to me in passing, and I was pretty quickly fascinated. After our meeting, I started doing some research on it, at first for no real reason other than my own curiosity. 
That, in turn, led to me asking Jacinda if she could, pretty, pretty please, share with me some of the records that her team had obtained, just so I could give them a quick look. You know, just for fun. Things had escalated from there. So, even though technically Jeff Titus wasn't a case that I was working on for Undisclosed, I knew how much of the case file Jacinda and her team had already obtained before COVID-19 hit. And I knew that her team had already recorded hours and hours of in-depth interviews with over a half dozen critical witnesses and investigators from the case. And side note, I had also gained a new appreciation for the amount of investigation that goes into an hour-long episode of a true crime TV show. Because all of that has to be condensed into the length of a single episode of TV, and that means that out of necessity, there are so many interesting stories that they hear about from these witnesses that end up on the cutting room floor, never to see the light of day. So I floated an idea. What if, in this unpredictable year of 2020, Undisclosed were to cover the case of Jeff Titus, using materials and interviews that Jacinda and the Red Marble team had already obtained? That way, even under a worst-case COVID-19 scenario, even if, God forbid, the pandemic was still raging by the time October rolled around, and we at Undisclosed were unable to meet with any witnesses or unable to obtain the records we needed, well, we'd still have something to work with. I don't think anyone was really sure how this would work out, but we decided to give it a try. And as it turned out, things went even better than expected for the investigation. And although the pandemic is still with us, I did get a chance to go to Michigan and interview witnesses by relocating temporarily to Kalamazoo. And Jacinda was able to join me there, which gave us a chance to spend weeks driving around Kalamazoo County together, tracking down witnesses, and making trips to Fulton State Game Area while wearing as much blaze orange as Walmart could sell us so that neither of us would be mistaken for a white-tailed deer. And also, as it turns out, Jacinda and I have very similar opinions about the logistics of how to conduct an investigation. For instance, we both agree on the importance of frequent stops at gas stations to pick up snacks for the road, preferably Slim Jims. However, we pretty much never agree on whether or not witnesses are lying to us. She's lying. Really? Yeah. Really? 100%. Why? She doesn't trust us. Though we like to take turns on which of us is the one calling bullshit. That dude's the lyingest liar that ever lied. Oh, really? that dude's the lyingest liar that ever lied. Really? You don't think he's lying? I don't think he's lying. Really? Oh my god, the way he, like, well, like... He didn't... You'll be hearing a lot from Jacinda this season, both in audio and video recorded interviews done by Red Marble Media, and also in interviews that she and Susan recorded while road tripping through Kalamazoo County. And sometimes you'll also hear Susan and Jacinda checking with Kevin Fitzpatrick. That's Jacinda's boss, president and executive producer of Red Marble Media. Hey, Kevin. Hey. You're on speaker. Okay. What did, what did he say? So much has gone down today. <laughs> like, I don't did even you know. Did just prove this murder? I mean, it's so shady. This also means that for this season of Undisclosed, it won't just be the podcast that's covering the case. Killer in Question, the new show from the team at Red Marble, premieres an investigation discovery on Sunday, November 1st, at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, with a two-hour episode in Jeff Titus. And trust me, if you're listening to this podcast, you're not going to want to miss it. Figuring out how to podcast through a pandemic has been something of a learning experience. 
For one thing, safety concerns have taken priority over any concerns about audio recording conditions. And you're probably going to notice that in some of the audio you hear this season, we're likely going to sound slightly muffled at times because we're wearing masks whenever we're around other people. And many of the interviews you're going to hear were done outdoors, leaving us at the mercy of passing trains, barking dogs, and lawn-mowing neighbors. Well, you know, I just don't think there's too much to investigate. They already got the son of a bitch who did it. And when conducting interviews outside hasn't been possible, we have sometimes made do by recording in large, empty inside areas that allow for social distancing. As it turns out, however, the available areas that meet that description often have their own soundtrack playing in the background. Another thing, the way the bodies were, they were both face down. Because the rate of COVID-19 infections in most of Western Michigan has remained low so far, we're able to take precautions to mitigate the risks of being out in the field and doing an investigation. But there are a few places here where infections have been surging. And there are also places where those at risk have almost no ability to protect themselves. COVID-19 has swept through Michigan's prisons with devastating results. Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from... Jeff Davis. A prisoner at the Michigan Department of Corrections, Lake Land Facility. Hey, Jeff. It's the first time I could get on the phone. Oh, good. I was a little worried. I've been reading um, news about Lakeland. Yeah, it's bad. We had nine deaths, I think. Got nine. Last I knew, there was nine guys on life support. They uh, turned around and tested 400 of us today. I was one of them. Call me after you get your COVID test back. Oh, okay. Wanna... Will do. Okay. You sound a little yeah. raspy, so take care of yourself. Thank you for using GTL. Nearly 60% of the 1,400 men incarcerated at Lakeland Correctional Facility would go on to test positive for COVID-19, including 68-year-old Jeff Titus. What are you, Jeff? You're on, like, day... Are you almost at the two-week mark since the positive? Uh, let's see. They told me the first. So today's the 12th. Yeah, it's close to that. Figure sometime next week they'll start retesting. Like I say, I never showed any signs. Right. Not everyone at Lakeland was as lucky as Jeff Titus. Now, that guy in my unit, he passed away yesterday. Oh, no, someone you knew? Yeah, he was the barber. Name was Country. Everybody called him Country. One CO turned around, he went over, and he put him in a wheelchair. He took him over to healthcare, and he says, here, do something. And they took him right to the hospital. Then he's been on a ventilator, and he passed away yesterday. To date, at least 18 men incarcerated at Lakeland have been killed by COVID-19's unchecked spread through the prison. And for obvious reasons, all visits to Michigan prisons were suspended back in March. And it's likely to be a year or longer before prisoners will be able to have visits with the outside world again. As a result, neither Jacinda nor Susan have been able to meet with Jeff Titus in person. But you will be able to hear from Jeff Titus throughout this season through his recorded phone calls.
As of this December, Jeff Titus will have spent 19 years behind bars. He was arrested back in 2001, following the reinvestigation of the Deer Hunter murders by Kalamazoo County's CCCCAT. That's the Cold Case and Career Criminal Apprehension Team. The arrest of Jeff Titus came after nearly two years of work by the Cold Case Team, and Detective Mike Brown and the other members of the team stand by that work today. I am the, from the old school, and I believe in uh, doing it right. In other words, I, I would never, ever, never, ever arrest anyone that I had, didn't feel 100% was guilty. Never. But Detective Versima, the first and for a time only investigator who worked the case back in 1990, does not agree with the cold case team's conclusions. I don't believe he did it. Um, there's a possibility. There's a possibility that I did it too, but pretty remote. But, uh, I mean, there's a possibility a lot of things could have happened. Why do you think the cold case team was given more resources than you guys, than you had when it first happened? Well, cold case team is a team to begin with. They're assigned to, as a team, to do these things. We, on the other hand, are assigned a case as an individual detective and then go from there. Usually on a a crime like that, though, where you've got two victims and uh, a whole lot of area to cover that you would have been assigned additional help didn't happen and I'm not sure exactly what why Mike Brown was also a detective with the Kalamazoo Sheriff's Department back then he tried to get assigned to the case to give Worsima the help that would clearly be required by the Dumma homicide case and I talked to him about I said you want me to help you and he said yeah hell yeah so I went into the captain I said captain he needs help he's way over his head he said the only way he's going to learn is do it himself, you know, and he left the guy hanging out to dry. Eventually, the captain relented. In 1990, on the weekend in question, I was hunting up at our cabin in the northern, but near Cadillac, Michigan, with my two sons. That's Detective Roy Ballot. At the time of the Fulton Game Area murders, he was a polygraph operator with the Kalamazoo County Sheriff's Department. And in that role, he was not usually out in the field, banging on doors and tracking down witnesses. But he could see Detective Worsema needed some help. And besides, he had a special interest in the case. When I arrived home that weekend or the next Monday, I'm not sure which, but my wife came out and informed us that one of our friend's sons had been killed at the Fulton State game area. This was Doug Estes. I was interested in what had happened because we have known his mother for at least 25 to 30 years at that time. When I went into work the next uh, day, I naturally wanted to know what was going on and I found out that uh, Bruce Wersima had been assigned to the investigation, that nobody was assisting him and that I was told that in my spare time, when I did not have an examination, I could assist him in following up on some of the leads, which we started to do. 
in some cases, I would even cancel tests so that I could continue with the investigation with Bruce. It seems like a pretty big case for one full-time person and one... It was an extremely big case. It was a double homicide. And ordinarily on other homicides and investigations that we had worked, the entire detective bureau was assigned to follow up on that, which should have been at least six to eight people on a full-time situation. Even with two of them now on the job, Bruce Wersima and Roy Ballot faced a daunting task. The crime scene itself gave them both too little and too much to work with. For instance, there was no shortage of ballistic evidence. Unsurprisingly, being a public hunting area, there were shotgun shells found just about everywhere around the crime scene. There was no physical evidence found at the crime scene that would indicate a suspect. And it sounds like and the most unusual thing about the crime scene is that one of the guns was missing. That is definitely most unusual, yes which makes you think it could have been used as the weapon of homicide and the person was conscious, evidence conscious enough to take it with them. Jim Bennett's black powder rifle lay on the forest floor, a few feet in front of where he'd fallen. It was streaked with blood and it had not been fired. But Doug Estes's weapon, a Mossberg pump-action shotgun, was nowhere to be seen. That night, the police had searched for it some, using lights brought in by the fire department to illuminate the crime scene, but in the black of the woods, it would have been difficult to find anything that wasn't in the immediate vicinity of the bodies. The following morning, after daybreak, two officers had resumed the search, but still, the shotgun could not be located. It could have been anywhere out there. It could have been thrown in the swamp, and nobody's... We're not to that point where we're going to call in scuba or, you know, people to go be searching on the swamps close by and stuff. With the crime scene offering little in the way of leads, Roy Ballot and Bruce Wersema had to begin with the basics. Means, motive, and opportunity. Who might have had the means to commit the murders, the motive to do so, and the opportunity to carry it all out? The means in this case were very obvious. Both Estes and Bennett had been killed by a single shotgun blast to the back, which did little to narrow down the investigator's search because that meant that essentially everyone in the area had the means to commit the crime. This is a terrible crime scene to work. You've got people, everybody out there is armed. If you hear shots and see somebody walking out, you you know, they're walking out, they're a hunter. Somebody did see somebody walking out, couldn't identify him, but saw him walking out toward the parking lot after the shots were fired. He's never been identified. We don't know who he is. Nobody's come up with any information. Nobody's volunteered the information. Again, you see somebody walking out of there with a gun. You expect them to have a gun. And then there's motive. Who would have had a reason to kill Doug Estes or Jim Bennett or both? I knew that Doug had been in trouble on occasion prior to that, but uh, uh, I had no idea why anybody would want to shoot him. Um, Or for that matter, a second party. Warsema and Ballot spent months chasing leads, or maybe just wild gooses, trying to track down who could have had a motive to kill either of the two men. But nothing conclusive was ever found. Besides, even if there was someone who'd had motive to kill either or both Jim Bennett and Doug Estes, that person would still have needed the opportunity to intercept them in the woods of the Fulton State game area. But for someone to have done that, 
they didn't need to know that either Jim Bennett or Doug Estes were going to be there in the first place. At that point, we were informed that nobody knew that they were going to go out there hunting that day. Jim Bennett, who was the second victim, was also not known to be going in that area. It's a spur of the moment on the three fellows with, or the two fellows with Estes and Jim Bennett walking out by himself. So we could never find a connection. There were suspects, of course, quite a few of them, but all were investigated and ruled out. The case became a, uh, a real whodunit. Uh, no obvious suspects presented themselves. We conducted several interviews of people who names had come up through various means, all to no avail. We did focus on one individual initially by the name of Jeff Titus. Jeff, uh, at that time, was uh, seemed to be a suspicious character in our minds. Jeff Titus owned the farm that borders the section of Fulton State Game Area where the two men were killed. As described in the original police report, his property line is about 200 feet east of where the bodies were found. Jeff Titus's property abuts the state land property. And there were rumors floating around that um, he didn't want people on his land, etc., etc. It wasn't just the rumors, though, that made Jeff Titus a suspicious character. The rumors by themselves would likely have been enough to bring him to the investigators' attention, but there was a much bigger reason that Jeff Titus became a suspect in the first place. The gun. I wish I'd never found it. But if I went back there and seen it, I just left it, never said nothing. For all it's cost me. On the morning of November 19, 1990, Jeff Titus called in to report that he'd found a shotgun in the Fulton State game area, not far from the edge of his property. Though who exactly Titus reported this to is somewhat disputed. Ultimately, Jeff Titus, yes. Two days after the double homicide, we, uh, we were contacted by, I think it was the Kalamazoo Gazette or, or News 3 out of Kalamazoo and the fact that uh, an individual had located one of the firearms that was missing from one of the victims at the night of the investigation at the scene. Uh, it turned out to be that Jeff Titus had called and let them know that he had found a weapon that the police had missed, he believed. So they had contacted us. Detective Worsama learned about Doug Estes' missing shotgun being found when he got a call from a reporter telling him about it. Jeff Titus, for his part, doesn't deny that he called the Kalamazoo Gazette to tell them about the shotgun he'd found, but he says he'd only phoned the media after he first made a call to the police. Either way, finding the gun made Jeff Titus an immediate suspect in the case. Well, that goes without saying. You're looking for a suspect in the area. He lives right on the line of the state game area. He comes up with a weapon that was missing before, whether it was overlooked or whatever occurred, I don't know how, but for him to inject himself into that is very suspicious. Following up on him, interview, trying to track his whereabouts at the time these things occurred. 
As suspicious as Detective Worsama was of Jeff Titus, there was a very good reason that he was ruled out as a suspect. Jeff Titus told investigators that on the afternoon the deer hunters had been murdered, he himself had been out deer hunting, but not on his farm and not anywhere near the Fulton State game area. He'd been 27 miles away, hunting on a farm owned by Eloise and Gerald Shepard. He'd been there until after dark. By the time Jeff Titus pulled into his farmhouse driveway that night, he could see distant lights shining in the forest beyond his fields, powered by a generator that the fire department had brought in to assist the investigators examining the area. The murders had taken place hours before he returned home. As far as I'm concerned, we have a golden alibi. He was where he said he was at Shepherd Farm. They have no reason to lie, make it up, or otherwise. It was Detective Roy Ballot who went out to investigate the new suspect's alibi. On November 28, 1990, 11 days after the murders, he went out to the Shepherd Farm, where Jeff Titus had said he'd been, and obtained a written statement from the Shepherds. He had coffee with us. He was here all afternoon with Stan, last name unknown. A teacher from Ann Arbor, I believe. Jeff has trapped and hunted our land for several years. I know he was here until dark because I saw him drop out of our drive with the deer he was taking home. To Ballot, this statement was confirmation of what Jeff Titus had told investigators. And it was signed by Eloise and Gerald Shepard. And that particular day from their farmhouse kitchen. Is that a rock-solid alibi? As far as I'm concerned, it's an alibi that put him nowhere near the Fulton State game area at 4 or 4.30 or 5 o'clock when those shots were fired. Yes, Jeff Titus's farm was the closest private property to where the hunters had been killed. And yes, Jeff Titus had found the murder victim's gun when the police had tried and failed to find it themselves. But none of that mattered if he wasn't at the Fulton State game area when the hunters had been killed. My gut feeling with Jeff was, of course, he's suspicious, goofy, but I'd love to found evidence. Didn't happen. And I'm not the person to steer somebody to fit something else. In this case, investigators were never able to find any direct evidence that could place their defendant at the crime scene. So to place him there, the prosecution needed to prove that Jeff Titus was the kind of person who would have killed two hunters given the chance or a reason to do so. Which means in this case, the question of what kind of person Jeff Titus is was put directly on trial. I've never, or not yet, I plan to talk to Jeff and and meet Jeff, but um, can you just describe him to me, to anyone who's never met him. When you first meet Jeff Titus, you know, who are you meeting? You're meeting a brash former Marine. Seems to be pretty cocksure of himself. Like I say, he likes, seems to like attention. Seems to like to put on that he knows more than he really does about things in general. Not too aggressive. If I met him on the street, just common, you know, Joe, everyday guy, that with, without knowing what I know about some of the background and stuff. Pleasant enough, nice guy, generally. A family man? It seemed to be. What did? It seemed that he was a family man interested in, yeah, raising his family. 
worked, held down a job. Held down a job. His family. Did well with that, as far as I know, other than some glitches. I don't know that their marriage was made in heaven, but that notwithstanding, uh, she did support him when I talked to her. I didn't feel that he was exhibiting any type of what you might think somebody who committed a double homicide might reveal. Jeff Titus grew up in Battle Creek, a city about 20 miles east of Kalamazoo. After high school, he joined the Marines and ended up in California for a few years. I was a White House security guard for President Nixon. I worked, well, I was presidential support security out of El Toro. I worked with Air Force One. I worked with Marine One. After four years active duty in the military, Jeff Titus moved back home to Michigan. He got a job, got married, and had two kids. Then, in the summer of 1990, the Titus family moved into a farmhouse outside of the tiny community of Fulton. Three of the farm's fields shared a property line with the Fulton State game area. So tell me, you know, around the time of this, this um, I guess the date was November 17th, what, right. what, was, the, what was the life you were living? You, you had a family, you had a job, you were hunting yep. and trapping. Yeah, I, had, uh, I hunted the first two days at home because we just bought that place in August from the, this is Dr. Stryker. It would have been his brother, the Stryker Corporation. Okay. And we own, okay, this was his brother, Homer. We bought his house. He lived to be 101. As a matter of fact, I think he died the day we took possession of the house or the day after. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, but he, and his son said, I, my dad would be glad that you people got this house because the way you are and so, and so forth. What does that mean? What about this house kind of fit you and your personality? Well, it was, uh, it had acreage. It had 80 acres, 40 on one side, road 40 on the other. And it was out in the country. And I, I like the country. I like, I really, you know, don't care for it being in a neighborhood. Too many people is too close. And, uh, <laughs> but I had all that room to roam and do what I wanted. For the most part, with one or two notable exceptions, Jeff Titus's new neighbors in Fulton had no objections to him. Ron Elwell, whose log cabin sits on 20 acres bordering the Titus farm directly to the north, remembers that at some point he learned that his neighbor Jeff Titus had been identified as a suspect in the case. What do you think? Were you like, I mean, you're living pretty close to him, so were you um, alarmed by that? or? Well, certainly. Anybody yeah. would be, yeah, yeah. And, and we knew Julie, and she's a sweetheart. Oh, gal, and yeah, they got had two girls that were, you know, we'd all went to church together, and you know, you just don't expect. Um, even though, you know, Jeff was different, but uh, he never. I mean, we just never had a problem with him. Though Ron Elwell himself didn't have conflicts with Jeff Titus as a neighbor, there was talk that he'd heard over the years. Though it's hard now to distinguish when this talk started and how much it was going on before his arrest. We'd heard it, but um, you know, I don't. I never heard. I never heard it from another hunter. Mm-hmm. I just always, you know, you hear the the rumors going around. Oh, so you didn't hear it firsthand. You just heard like people no. talked, whatever. No. Other neighbors had heard this kind of talk too. He, yeah, he was a good guy. He was very intense about hunting. Um, he um, liked to. He he felt like he needed to uh, protect his property. And um, he um, 
to to us, he was he was fine. Um, I think sometimes he ran into some problems with people that he thought shouldn't be where they were. But um, other than that, I think he was fine. Right now, as you're listening to these descriptions of Jeff Titus and the basic facts of the crime he was convicted of, you may be beginning to picture in your head some sort of curmudgeonly isolationist. A loner who had retreated onto his 80 acres in order to escape the annoyances and intrusions of the outside world. Or at least, that's what I had begun to picture when I first heard this case summarized in broad strokes. But the more I heard from people who had known Jeff Titus, the more I realized that this character that I was imagining may have been a good fit for the defendant that was outlined in the prosecution's case. But it didn't actually fit Titus himself. Jeff was a very open person, outgoing, speaking person. And he doesn't know a stranger. Uh, he, he's, he was a chatterbox. He liked to tell you what, what he'd done. That's Jack Warren, or as Jeff Titus likes to call him, Big Jack. Jack and Jeff both worked at the VA hospital in Battle Creek, where they'd bonded over their shared interest in hunting. And although Big Jack is the kind of person who seems to consider his own words three or four times over before venturing to say them out loud, Jeff's chatterbox ways didn't bother him. The two had been friends for many years before Titus' arrest. But even Jeff Titus' closest friends will be the first to tell you that they understand completely why others don't always appreciate Jeff's company. Either you liked Jeff or you didn't. There was no no other way to be. If you had the ability, which I think I do, to just let certain things pass, but other people would be offended by things he'd done. To get along with Jeff Titus, you probably need one of two things. You either need, like Big Jack Warren says, the ability to let things pass, or you need to have an interest in hunting. I'll give you an example. Maybe he shot, which he did, an animal while he was target practicing. You know, well, he would talk about that in a way, you know, uh, a happy kind of positive way, where maybe you would be listening and hear that story, and there's no way you want to hear that story because you like to raccoon. It's not that Jeff is unaware that others have this criticism of him. He's heard it before. Some people said all he ever did was talk about hunting and shooting. (laughs) So, but see, that's the things I like to do. Right. Jeff loves hunting. And often, he seems to assume that everyone else shares his love of hunting, too. And even when he's talking to people who share his love of hunting, like his cousin Lola Hedges... Jeff doesn't always pick up on when they no longer want to talk about hunting. Okay, we'll go out there and get a big one tonight. Yeah, I hope to. If you quit talking so we can get done. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay, you take care, cuz. Okay, you hanging up? Yep. Oh, okay, so you guys are all done talking to me? Yep. Okay. Okay. Y'all have a nice day. Take care of yourselves. Good luck and happiness is a large gut pile. Remember that. Yeah, <laughs> you've said it enough to me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I miss, I miss them. I miss my hunt. Yeah, I don't doubt that. 
In case you missed it, what Jeff said to Lola there was, happiness is a large gut pile. And for anyone else out there who is now wondering what exactly a gut pile is, well, it's what happens after a deer is harvested. You field dress it. Which, and I am no expert here, but as I've come to understand, means that after shooting a deer, but before carrying it out of the woods, you scoop out all the guts and dump them in the pile on the forest floor. For what may be self-evident reasons, there's something of a divide between how experienced hunters respond to Jeff Titus compared to how everyone else responds to Jeff Titus. And that divide is also apparent among the investigators who worked the Fulton State Game Area case. For instance, Detective Bruce Worsema, who is not a hunter, was immediately suspicious of Jeff Titus. But Detective Roy Ballot, who is a hunter, did not share Worsema's same initial misgivings. Now, Bruce told me when we started this thing, he said that that dude's weird. He said, I, I can't really talk to him. I said, let's go out and talk to him. We went out to the barn. We got looking around, and he's showing me his mounts and various other things. And we got talking, and I didn't have any problem at all with him. To some investigators, though, Jeff Titus's interest in hunting wasn't just a personality quirk. It was an indication of Titus's capacity and desire to carry out the murder of humans. To Detective Mike Brown, the senior detective on the cold case team that ultimately made the arrest in this case, Jeff Titus's intense interest in hunting was something akin to the actions of a budding serial killer who begins his career by torturing animals before moving on to larger crimes. What's the biggest torture to an animal you can get? Kill him and stop him. He's a trophy guy. He's a trophy guy. I mean, I, I don't hunt. I Probably because I can't sit still long enough, but, but I fished. <laughs> I kill animals. Well, no, no, I killed too. I, you know, I used to, when I was a kid, 12 years old, I trapped and I hunted. And yeah, I lived out in a rural area and I'd kill a squirrel, but we ate the damn thing. You know, we'd eat it. So did Titus. Yeah, yeah, but then he stopped it. Even though Detective Brown found Jeff Titus's interest in hunting to be over the top and suspicious, that by itself is not evidence that he committed a double homicide. But there was other less abstract evidence to convince Mike Brown of Jeff Titus's guilt, evidence that Jeff Titus himself brought into existence. Because if you're a suspect in an unsolved double homicide, I think it's fair to say that being a chatterbox with a penchant for discussing topics that unsettle others is a less than ideal combination of personality traits. Jeff, Jeff Titus is a man who, given his personality, is willing to say things that are very unwise. That's Stan Driscoll, who was a friend and hunting companion of Jeff Titus's for many years. He, along with the shepherds, was Jeff's alibi for the day of the murders. And he bragged about this hunting around his property. And even apparently, uh, according to some of these police reports, and I don't doubt them, uh, almost bragged about he might have done it. And that would make him obviously a very interesting person for the police to look into both among those who think Titus is guilty and those who think he is innocent, there's this widespread belief that Jeff Titus bragged, or almost bragged, about committing the murders. And this bragging is what got him convicted in the end. Here's Gary Kremble, the cousin of Doug Estes, on why it took so long to solve the murder. I think it was one guy with one big secret. Very narcissistic, 
very controlling, very territorial, and that's why he was able to keep it a secret for that long. And I think that, I'm not sure, but I think he was working at the uh, VA hospital yeah. or whatever, because I did an internship there, but I wasn't there at the same time. But uh, he, I guess, loose lips, sink ships, you know, I thought it'd be a big thing to talk about how he murdered a couple of innocent men. And Stan Driscoll and Gary Kremble aren't wrong to suggest that Jeff Titus talked his way into a guilty verdict. He absolutely did. In fact, that may be the only thing that everyone in this case can universally agree on. Because when the cold case team reopened the investigation in 2000 and Jeff Titus became their lead suspect, there were a lot of witnesses, like a lot, a lot, who came forward to tell police about all sorts of things that Titus had said, or supposedly said, over the years. Mostly, things about the shotgun he'd found and what he'd done with it after. But there was one witness who testified that Jeff Titus made a statement to her that could be described as bragging, or almost bragging, that he had done the murders. And I said to him, you did this. And he said, probably. To Detective Wersama, though, all these witnesses with all these statements about things Titus had said was not necessarily evidence of Titus's involvement in the murders. To Wersama, it could just as easily be explained as a function of Jeff Titus being who he is. It's been my experience that people who have personalities similar to Jeff's, a lot of people just don't get, they don't like them. And if they hear anything about the person being possibly involved in something, they come out, I think they come out on the end, on the side of the worst. That he's odd enough, he probably did get do something, he was involved somehow. And again, we felt that way too, initially. Hard to shake, but the facts are the facts. We could not put him in that crime, as doing that crime. that Detectives Bruce Wersema and Roy Ballot ruled out Jeff Titus isn't some kind of final answer in this case. There were gaps in the initial investigation, sometimes big gaps. And there were other maybe-could-be-possible suspects in this case who were seen and Ballot ruled out for reasons that I still don't entirely understand. Sure, some of the detectives' original leads had been pushed to their ends and then petered out, with no satisfying answers and no obvious direction to continue, but that's not the same as saying that those leads were affirmatively ruled out. When I first looked at this case, I think I had the same reaction that the cold case team must have had. Okay, so Jeff Titus has an alibi that met basic scrutiny. Cool. That's neat and all, but a couple notes in the case file isn't proof of anything. And who knows what you might find once you start to poke at it. So I'm all in favor of examining the original investigator's case with a critical eye. And the cold case team was right to wonder if maybe there was something that the original investigators had overlooked something that could link Jeff Titus to the crime and show how he'd carried it out. Maybe, after reopening the case, the new investigators would be able to find new evidence, something that the original investigators had never seen. 
And when Detective Bruce Worsema learned of Jeff Titus's arrest, that's what he assumed must have happened. But it sounds like you, you thought, or you had faith yourself, that they must have uncovered something. Yes, I did think that. That they had uncovered something that we didn't know about. Something really damning. I figured they probably, if there's something there, they're going to get it. They're going to come up with it. And they have in the past. So, um, they didn't find anything else? Not that I'm aware of. Nope. Now, in terms of quantity, the cold case team did find more evidence beyond what the original investigators had. After two years of working the reopened case, the cold case team was able to dig up more statements from Jeff Titus's old co-workers and more statements from hunters who said they'd had run-ins with Jeff Titus in the state game area. But that evidence was not qualitatively different from anything the original investigators had back in 1990. It was just more examples of the same kind of evidence. Because what the cold case team really found was a flaw in Jeff Titus's existing alibi. First of all, Titus thought he was smarter than the, the cops. And he outsmarted Bruce and, and Ballot. He outsmarted them. And uh, they believed him. They believed what he said. That's Detective Mike Brown. When the cold case team picked up the investigation in 2000, 10 years after the murders, Mike Brown and the other investigators had taken an immediate interest in Jeff Titus. Yes, the original investigators had excluded him as a suspect based upon his alibi, but that alibi was incomplete. What the cold case team realized is that just because a suspect was seen 27 miles away from the scene of a crime shortly before it happened, and just because that suspect is then seen again at that same spot, 27 miles away shortly after the crime happened, well, that doesn't mean the suspect was 27 miles away from the scene at the moment when the crime actually happened. In this case, the shepherds had seen Jeff Titus and his friend Stan Driscoll arrive out at the shepherd farm at around 4 p.m. on the day of the murders. They had all had coffee together at the farmhouse before Titus and Driscoll had gone out into the woods to their separate places to hunker down and wait for deer. And the shepherds had seen Jeff and Stan again just after dark, at around 6 p.m., when they'd packed up and drove out of the shepherd farm, with a deer in the back of Jeff Titus's pickup. But the murders in the Fulton State game area took place in between the two times the shepherds had seen them, at some point during an approximately one-hour window between about 4.30 and 5.30 that afternoon. Which means there would still have been plenty of time for Jeff Titus to have been at the shepherd farm at 4 p.m., then have driven 27 miles back to his own farm in Fulton, find the victim somewhere in or around the Fulton State game area, shoot them both, and then drive the 27 miles back to the Shepherd Farm again, where the Shepherd saw him once again at 6 p.m. Okay, well maybe there wouldn't have been plenty of time for all of that, but it leaves enough time, probably. Yeah, I, I think when the, when the cold case team talked to Stan, they realized there was about a two-hour window that he didn't see you that day. Yeah, but my truck was in Shepherd's driveway and I couldn't leave without my truck. And the only way out was to go through their driveway. I had to go out the driveway and the Shepherds were home and they would have heard the truck leaving on the crushed stone because they always look to see who's driving in. Right, so you think they would have heard a truck coming or going. Oh yeah, they, they would have heard anything coming in and out. 
If Jeff Titus is right, the shepherds would have known if he tried to sneak away and then sneak back onto their farm on the afternoon of November 17, 1990. But whether or not a jury would have found the shepherds to be a convincing alibi for Jeff Titus will never be known. Titus' attorneys declined to call the shepherds as witnesses for the defense. They also declined to call the original investigators who had interviewed the shepherds and who remained convinced of Titus' innocence. So the jury never heard from them. Jeff Titus was convicted and sentenced to two life sentences, without the possibility of parole. He appealed, and the appeal was denied. Years passed. Jeff Titus had no attorneys, and no means to hire any. Which is how it came to be that the case's original investigators were the ones left to pick up the case once again. We don't care who solves it. Just get it solved. That's the main thing. I just want that understood, because there seems to be a little blowback from the prosecutor's office that uh, by doing this or coming forward or trying to find somebody to help us with it, we're trying to save face. If I wanted to save face, I would have just uh, snuck away and uh, hid somewhere and uh, retired and been on my way traveling. But this is important enough to us that we need to stay with it, no matter what they think. And that's where I'm at with that. episode one of the new season of Undisclosed, covering the case of Jeff Titus. We're back next Monday with episode two, and catch us this Thursday for an addenda to recap and discuss this week's episode. And don't forget this Sunday, November 1st, you can catch the two-hour-long premiere of Killer in Question on Investigation Discovery. Methel Telhan is our executive producer, our logo was designed by Baluki, and our theme music is by Ramiro Marquez. Audio production is done by Rebecca Lavoie of Partners in Crime Media, host of the Crime Writers On podcast. Transcripts for this episode will be available at our website at undisclosed-podcast.com, and they're prepared by our amazing transcript team, Breda Bliss, Erica Fladell, Don Logus, and Skylar Park. And of course, thank you to all of our sponsors for making it possible for us to come back week after week. Don't forget to follow us online. On all social media, our handle is at UndisclosedPod. That's for Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if any of our listeners have information out there on Jeff Titus's case that they'd like to share, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at undisclosedpodcast@gmail.com, or you can call and leave a message at 410-205-5563. That's all for this week, and thanks so much for listening.